1: We are living through the worst economy that almost anybody alive has ever seen. You have to be over 80 years old to go back to the 30s uh, to to have seen worse. And maybe we're even worse than that.
0: That's right. We are living through the worst economy possibly ever in U.S. history. And yet during this time, I have $90,000 invested and I'm continuing to invest. That's basically the situation here. What I want to do in this video is explain why I'm choosing to do this, why I would put $91,000 at risk in an economy that's the worst economy we've ever seen. And I'm going to go through what I think are the three basic realistic scenarios that the U.S. can go through. The three basic scenarios and why I think in each one of these scenarios, one, two, and three, I think that it doesn't make sense to sell. Basically, I don't think there's any scenario that convinces me to sell. So we'll be looking at this. I'll be explaining why I don't ever plan on selling. And then, of course, we have some emails and other fun stuff to get to. Now, like I said, I have a lot of money, at least to me, invested in this portfolio. It's invested in the stock market. It's mostly a breakdown of large cap dividend paying companies diversified in different industries. If you want to look at it, there's a link in the description that you can click into each one of these uh, different sections here and you can see exactly what my holdings are. So, uh, Either way, I have a lot of money invested. And the question is, is whether that's a good decision right now. Some people don't think so. I've watched different videos and different content creators saying, hey, you know, I think I'm going to move to cash because the risk-reward right now is not really good. The market isn't priced correctly. If you go to different graphs like this, they have a pretty sound argument. I don't necessarily disagree with them in the context that they're making their argument. In fact, if I go to the year-to-date view of the Dow Jones here, and I look at it from the all-time high to where we are currently, it's down around 17%. Now consider this in the context of the current economy. It's a pretty bad economy, and the Dow Jones is down 17% from its all-time highs. That's not a whole lot. If we go to the S&P 500, this is even, even better. It's down only 13% because the Dow Jones has a lot of big industrial companies, the S&P 500 has a lot of these big large mega cap tech companies like Microsoft and Apple that really weren't affected too much by the downturn. So these companies didn't have to close their doors and stuff. So it's down 13%. Now, keep this in mind. The S&P 500 is down 13% basically from its all-time highs. The Dow Jones is down 17% from its all-time highs. Let's go ahead and go back to Howard Marks. This is the founder of Oak Tree Capital. He's a billionaire. And he gives his assessment on the current condition of the economy. Let's go ahead and listen to a little bit more of this.
1: We are living through the worst economy that almost anybody alive has ever seen. You have to be over 80 years old to go back to the 30s uh, to, to have seen worse. And maybe we're even worse than that. Uh, it's believed that the unemployment rate will hit a higher level than was achieved in the uh, Great Depression uh i people are talking about second quarter gdp being down 30 to 40 percent. as far as we know i mean there aren't good quarterly records but as far as we know there's never been a uh, quarterly decline in gdp to that extent so uh th- th- we're in the worst uh economic environment let's say ever
0: now i don't disagree at all with howard marx here I think that he's accurately describing the situation. He goes on to explain a few differences that we have the Fed really supporting the economy right now. He says that relying on the Fed you know, has its own implications and concerns and risks, but there are differences between now and 1930, and a lot of them is the way that the Fed's supporting the economy. But regardless, the point that he's making, that the economy is not good right now. It's really bad. Historically speaking, it's probably the worst that you've ever seen in your entire life. Even if you're elderly, It still might be the worst economy you've ever seen in your life. Having this many unemployed people, having GDP expected to fall this amount, that's the the worst numbers that we've ever seen. And then knowing that it's the worst economy we've had possibly ever, knowing all these bad economic numbers, again, the S&P 500 is down like 13%. So some people are correctly, they're scratching their heads and saying, how is the economy this bad with the stock market down 13%? Is the stock market accurately priced? Those are the questions people have. And then some people say, well, I look at the potential upside and the potential downside, and I see a lot more downside in the stock market than I see upside. They look at this and they say, it might go up 10%, but it could go down 50%, could go down 60% from where it is. So they think the risk reward is not good right now because they believe the stock market isn't factoring in the economy correctly. Now, I think these are all solid arguments. I don't really have a problem with people making these arguments. And if they want to sell and move to cash based off of that, I think that that's fine. I don't have any issues with it. I'm not really arguing against what people are saying. What I want to do is introduce my frame of thought and how it might differ from it. I see three basic scenarios that can happen. And in each one of them, I don't really see a great reason to sell. So let me go through each one of them real quick. Okay, let's go through the first scenario. So this one's scenario one. I think this one is possible But I think this scenario is unlikely. This would be where the economy recovers very quickly, that we have that V-shaped recovery. The U.S. economy has a quick recovery. People quickly regain employment. So we have like 3 million people losing jobs every week or at least filing for unemployment. This would be the reverse of that. Instead of 3 million people losing jobs, now we have 3 million job gains every single week. Week after week, you're getting that good news of another 3 to 4 million people that get their jobs back. That would be great news. Then we have treatments to the virus. Not only do we have news that a vaccine is on the way, it's being tested, and it's having positive results, but we also have different therapies and better ways to treat the virus. So the virus becomes less of a concern, and we don't have that huge resurgence that a lot of people are expecting. So this is where, instead of all the news being negative, it starts to turn around really quickly where everything starts to seem positive again. We have good health news. We have good economic news. People are regaining jobs. Uh, the damage to companies is limited. Really, things reverse very quickly and the economy is back on track. Now, in this scenario, the very optimistic one, I think that it's somewhat unlikely. If I was to give it like a percent chance, I think it would be somewhere around like 20%, 10, 20%. So unlikely, but not impossible. It is possible that the economy could recover quickly. That's a possibility. We have a lot of unknowns, but again, I think this one is unlikely. Now, In this scenario, does it make sense to not be invested? Does it make sense to sell out of the market? Of course not. This is the good scenario. This is the optimistic one. You want to have your money in the market so that if it recovers quickly, you ride along with those gains. If businesses flourish and business is good, you want to have your money in the market for that. So in this scenario, the one that I think is unlikely, I think it does make sense to be invested. I don't think there's a good argument for selling out of the market, but let's go ahead and go to the second one. Scenario two is not the optimist, it's the realist. This is the one where the economic effects are a little bit longer lasting. We have things like the US economy has a very slow recovery. It's not the V-shaped recovery, it is the swoosh recovery. We have employment taking years to regain. We're seeing these numbers of negative 3 million a week, and instead of having employment regain at 3 million a week, instead it's at a couple hundred thousand a week, maybe. And it takes years and years to finally regain back to anywhere close to where it was to begin with. Lots of companies go out of business. Even though the Fed aggressively tries to fight the downturn, a lot of companies go out of business for good, and that affects the economy for a long time. Many people default on loans. So people unemployed have trouble paying for their mortgage, paying for their car loans, paying for their credit cards. They default on them, and that causes stress to our financial systems. Banks are stressed because of the amount of default. Treatments to the virus take a long time, a lot longer than expected. The the good news and the rumors of there being good treatments and vaccines, they really just don't pan out quite as well, and the virus has resurgence that keep affecting the economy into the future. So these are things that could happen in scenario two, where it's not quite as rosy as the first one. Things do eventually recover, let's say within five years, but it does take a number of years. That's a long time to wait for recovery. When I'm sitting here making videos every week, talking about my portfolio, going through this five years is a long time for the economy to recover. And the stock market in scenario two could drop in the meantime. Within those five years, we could test new lows. We could have another drop. But in this scenario, even the realist one, the economy does recover. We don't go into some type of spiral out of control where it never recovers. In scenario two, even though the outlook is a little bit more grim, it's not completely optimistic Eventually, the economy does recover. And with that recovery, the stock market goes along with it. And eventually, we do hit new highs in the stock market. Now, does it make sense to sell in scenario two? I don't think so. Why would I sell right now if I think the economy is going to recover within five years or just a- around five years? If it takes five or six years, if I think it's going to take that long, to me, it still makes sense to just buy companies, keep invested, and wait for the recovery. Because if I'm expecting it to happen, The economy will eventually recover the economy will eventually grow the stock market should hit all time highs sometime in five or six years with the economy recovering so in this second scenario just like the first one i don't see a a real good argument that says i should sell and move to cash i don't really see that argument as being a strong argument some people argue that well in this one if reality sets in that the economy is going to take a lot longer to recover people are going to sell out that will lower the stock market. And you could have sold and then bought in at a lower price. That's what people are saying that the stock market will probably go down 30 or 40%. You could have sold and then bought back in when it's down 30 or 40%. I think that that's really, really difficult to do. I'm not good at timing the market. I think that it's easier to stay invested to wait for a recovery. And in the meantime, try to buy good companies at good prices, They pay a good yield and you can just enjoy a constant stream of income. That's so much easier to do. If you try to sell out right now and then wait for the economy to go down far enough to drag the stock market down and then try to buy back in at the right time, you might be successful, but I could see myself really screwing that up. So I think it's really difficult to time the market. And if you think the economy is going to recover somewhere within the next five years, it's just so much easier to wait it out, so much less stressful. Even if it goes down in the meantime for the next one or two years. I'd rather just keep investing, keep buying, and wait out the recovery. And then we have scenario three, the pessimistic scenario, the doomsday. This is no recovery for decades. We have not only, there's there's no long, drawn-out recovery. There's simply just not a recovery. We have a long, drawn-out depression. And the U.S. economy enters one of these uh, spiral inflation, spiral deflation, stagflation, one of those scary economic terms. That really means that money becomes worth a lot less, or it becomes worth too much, and we can't manage our debt. Either one of those scenarios aren't good. If we have too much inflation, that's not good. If we have too much deflation, that's even worse. So uh, if either of those happen, that's not a good thing to have happen, and it can spiral out of control, especially in the deflationary phase. I think the Fed's more worried about that. So uh, we have issues like that that we could face, and we have the treatment being worse than the cure. I'm not talking about coronavirus when I say that. I'm saying the Fed. The, the treatment that the Fed is giving us, what if it's worse than the cure? What if it's worse than the thing they're treating? What if it has unintended consequences that causes the U.S. economy to spiral out of control in some direction? We have too much debt. We have too much unexpected consequences. What this could be is similar to the often referenced Japanese stock market. If you're not familiar, the Japanese stock market went through a phase where it really just never recovered. Since like the 80s, it hit a peak. And since then, it's never been back to where it was. It was a huge asset bubble, both in real estate and in the companies in Japan. People bid them up to prices that were astronomical. So let's say we have that. We have something happen that's similar to what happened to the Japanese stock market. That the US economy was really just this big bubble. Everything was inflated. It had all these problems and the virus was just the pin that poked the bubble Everything explodes, and it's really never going to recover for decades and decades. Now, overall, I think this scenario is extremely unlikely. I don't think it's that realistic. Uh, I think most of people that really try to sell this happening, they're also selling gold. That's typically what happens. So keep that in mind when people are really advocating for this type of thing, saying that it's realistic, you know, they're typically selling gold. But regardless, I think this is a possibility. Is something that theoretically could happen. We could have a a type of collapse in the U.S. that takes decades to recover. Really just never happens in our whole investing careers. So even if we had this play out, if we had this doomsday, worst case scenario, am I much better off having sold right now than staying invested? I don't really think so. I don't think there's a, a great argument that convinces me that I'd be much better off in 20 years if I sold right now. If we have this type of thing happen... I think we're all in this same big boat. We're all in this boat called the world economy. If the world economy comes to a grinding halt, all of us are going to suffer. Whether you're invested or not, none of us are going to have good retirements. Think about this. All of us have a retirement that's kind of dependent on investing. We have our pensions, our 401ks, our Roth IRAs. We have all these tools to build a retirement, and most of them are invested in the stock market. If the stock market goes down and never recovers throughout the duration of our lifetime, then none of us are going to have a good retirement. You could save up for your own retirement, but most people make somewhere between 500000 and like $2 million on the high end over the, the, the course of their working life. So in order to save for retirement without investing, you'd literally have to save almost every penny you make without spending any of it. Not really a plausible thing to have happen. Either that or you have to make like double what the normal person does. So this is a scenario where I just think we're all on this big ship. If it doesn't work out at all, I think all of us are going to suffer. I have my doubts that moving your money to precious metals is really the, the thing that would save you here. Now, that might be the case. But if you do that and keep all your money in gold, and you're waiting for the collapse of the global economy, not only are you waiting for a scenario that I think is highly unlikely, but even if we do have it, I have my doubts of how that will work out. We don't really know how people will value gold if the global economy is completely stagnant for decades. They might value it well, but it might not be valued as much as it was historically. So there you go. That's the reason why I say I'm not selling is because I look at the different options that I think are are likely outcomes or probable outcomes of the U.S. economy and the stock market. And in each one of these scenarios, I just think it doesn't serve me better to sell. doesn't serve me better to sell out. I'm better served keeping my money in the market in each case. Now, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you have an argument that I haven't considered. If that's the case, if I'm wrong, leave a comment, write me an email, I'd be happy to go over it because I've thought about this a lot. And again, in each case, I think I'm better served staying invested. So what I plan on doing is basically more of the same, focusing on passive income, focusing on generating a lot of cash flow. I have $88 in my cash balance right now. That's all from dividends. None of this is from deposits. Typically, what I do is I take this money from dividends in my cash balance, I combine it with money that I deposit, and then I use that to buy shares of whatever companies I think are either a good value or are a good company to buy, given the current threats that we face. So uh, I bought companies in healthcare, companies in tech, uh, companies in consumer, different ones that I think are a good buy. So that's what I've been doing. I plan on continuing to do that, and I'll keep you updated week by week with it. Now, moving on, there's a couple items I want to address before going to emails and questions. One of them is this video that I came across. This is the social distancing table that this restaurant in Maryland came up with. It's basically a big inflatable tube on a a table that's on wheels. So let me go ahead and play this clip here. This is real, by the way, this isn't fake. Now, hopefully, this is just an attempt at the store owner to have some type of viral marketing, some type of funny marketing gimmick that he was doing. And if he did do that, good job. I mean, he did a good job with making these tables. But if this is really an unironic attempt to have social distancing at his restaurant, if this is the new normal, I don't want any part of it. I'll be good staying in my house forever and eating takeout if this is what the dine-in experience is going to be like at restaurants. What this reminds me of is a while back, I showed this video clip of this guy. He made this thing called the Pandemic Prevention Bell. Let me play just a a clip of this. This is the Pandemic Prevention Bell. Stop spreading germs today. The included spandex wristbands will ensure your hands will never be able to reach your face. Keep those disgusting hands as far away as possible. No. No. Okay, now I didn't think that I had to point this out, but I feel like I must. This was a, a joke here. This guy made this as a funny joke, haha, laugh at the absurdity of this pandemic prevention belt. I think we've gotten to the point, though, where some people might actually use this type of thing unironically. I think if he was to mass produce that belt and sell it, the owner of this restaurant would be the first customer. So after seeing this video, hopefully this isn't our uh, our new normal here. Okay, now let's move on to some emails. joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com is the email address. I first want to highlight one comment that was left on the previous episode I did. This is from Luke. He says, can't wait to see you hit 100K. My portfolio is now over 10K and I can't believe it. Never thought I'd be able to save that much money so fast. Thanks for the inspiration and the awesome content. Keep it up. I really appreciate that comment, Luke. This is something I think is awesome. Anytime that I make episodes, one of my favorite things is to see if it motivates other people to save money, to invest, to pay off debts, to do anything like that. Because I genuinely think no matter what companies you buy, the specific investment decisions you make, whether you go for growth companies or dividend, all that type of stuff can muddle out the fact that if you're putting your money in productive assets, if you're making financially good decisions, it's going to improve your life. And like you mentioned, you can't believe that, that you have $10,000 invested now. Once it gets past $10,000 in value, Luke, that is when you get a lot of momentum, I think. When you got to this point, realize that you're so far past What most people are doing. Most people couldn't go two weeks without having a paycheck. They can't survive a month without having a paycheck. You have $10,000 in investments sitting there that's pretty liquid. You could take it out at any time you want. So you essentially have saved up $10,000. You have it invested right now working for you, but this is a, a huge landmark and you have to give yourself a pat on the back for doing something that most people won't do. You have momentum going in the right direction. You're saving this money, using it wisely, and you're going to be rewarded for it down the road. If you keep going, I think momentum will push this further and further along. It'll get easier to build up larger sums of money. So, it'll be at 20,000 before you think, and then it'll be at 40,000 before you think, you know, you'll be surprised how quickly it grows if you stay consistent. Diego says, hey, Joseph, people are being narcissistic and selfish regarding the HEROES Act. Nobody's happy that immigrants will be able to receive a stimulus check. Don't forget that there are mixed families who have kids born in the U.S. Is it right that American children with one immigrant parent won't get help during this critical time? Are they not considered Americans for having an immigrant parent? Personally, I don't think there should be any talks regarding a stimulus check because it won't help the economy and it will just cause future problems. If we're honest, Americans would be okay with the HEROES Act. If the immigrants were taken out of the equation, most people don't care if it affects the economy. They just want all the benefits for themselves. They're giving an attitude that if they can't have it, nobody can. We are being greedy and forgetting the virus does not care about your status. Love your videos. Thank you. Well, Diego, I appreciate the email. I'm glad that you like the show. I think you're highlighting a point or at least arriving at a conclusion that I think most people get to at some point, which is the government is not good at properly rewarding people for effort, or their situation in an equitable way. That's just not a skill the government really has that they're good at, that they're known for. Uh, In fact, a lot of the ways that they do things are almost counterintuitive. They're against the incentive. So I can give the example of, you know, a big business that has done stock buybacks for a decade, that hasn't saved any money for itself, and then it runs into trouble and the government steps in and bails it out. That is rewarding bad behavior. That is, You know, a moral hazard is the term for it. So the government's really good at rewarding bad behavior, and it's really good at discouraging good behavior. For instance, my older brother, he's been working during this entire downturn. He's an eye surgeon, and he's been doing a lot of procedures that aren't elective procedures. These are emergency procedures. So people come in, they have um, damage done to their eye, they have eye issues, and they need an immediate surgery to help restore vision. He'll do these surgeries, they're really highly complex, highly stressful surgeries, and he's not going to receive any money from the stimulus. He's on the side where he pays nearly 50% of his income in taxes, but he's not going to receive any money in stimulus because he makes over the threshold. So there's people that, you know, they're in that situation where they're working, doing things that are pretty important, you know. Fixing your vision is kind of an important thing that aren't rewarded by the government. There's companies that mismanage businesses that get huge paychecks, and they get a lifeline. There's a, a whole thing with the government. They're really, really good at making it so that they have the wrong incentives. There's lots of moral hazards. There's lots of issues with it. You're probably looking at this, and I can sense some frustration with this email. You're saying, you know, there's probably some people you're talking about, undocumented immigrants that are contributing. They're working, they're probably paying taxes, and they're not going to receive any money. Fair enough. There's arguments on either side. But the main point is, if you're giving away $5 trillion, if you're expecting a few bureaucrats in Washington to do that in a very equitable way, where everybody is receiving it fairly, it's just not going to happen. There's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. Everybody wants to be on the winner side, but it doesn't work out that way. I could give more examples of moral hazards. So uh, one part of it is student loan forgiveness. There's winners and losers in that situation. Obviously, the winners in that situation would be the people carrying student loans that would have it forgiven. That would be a huge win for them. The losers in that situation are the people that worked two jobs to pay off their student loans that were financially responsible. So. Again, there's there's incentives and disincentives. A lot of times the government has it backwards, but that's the way the government works. So my advice, I guess, even thinking about this for a minute, is just, uh, you know, be grateful if you're on the side where you're benefiting from it. If you're not, don't concern yourself too much with it because it's out of your control. And like most things with politics and the government, uh, it's probably better to not concern yourself with it too much. Do what you can, but then focus on things you're in more control of. So that's what I try to do, not concern myself too much with stuff that is out of my control and how they divvy up and give out trillions of dollars is definitely out of my control. So uh, that's the best advice I have on that subject. All right. Ryan says, hi, Joseph. Firstly, thank you for the informative and thought-provoking videos. I watch every week and appreciate the effort. My question is regarding negative bonds. Here in the UK, the Bank of England is now offering a three-year bond with a negative 0.003% yield. As an investor, I cannot see the appeal. Knowing that your investments will return less than initially invested seems like a poor move, or is there some upside I am overlooking? Thank you for taking the time to read this, Ryan. Well, this is an interesting question, Ryan. This is something that's perplexing to a lot of new investors. I have, I think, limited knowledge of the bond market. It gets very complex, but I've listened to a lot of different opinions on this. People like Jeffrey Gundlach that strongly oppose the U.S. following the example of europe in entering into negative interest rates he thinks that that would be an incredibly bad decision for the u.s so you can look at some videos of him jeffrey Gunlock has talked about this a lot but overall i think it's policies where the intention was to spur economic growth europe wanted to have it so money was really cheap and that would make it so the economy would grow faster it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of evidence to support that but that's the basis of it the question is why would people buy a negative yielding bond why would anybody do that? Is there some hidden reason why? I think the reason why is because they have no other place to put the money. If you're controlling billions of dollars, that money has to exist somewhere. It can't just be in the air nowhere, it has to actually exist somewhere. So typically, that's in equity of companies. So you have stocks, or you have bonds. And if you don't want to put your money in stocks, you put it in bonds. Well, what if the bonds aren't yielding? well? What if they're negative yielding? Again, that money has to be somewhere. So if some people will buy the bonds, just because they're really forced to. They have no other good place to put the money. If they don't want to actively buy shares of companies, they have to put that money in bonds. So I think that's the answer. I think there's a lot of money that exists. There's not a lot of places to put it. So it ends up in these bonds, even if they're guaranteed to give you a negative return. So I'm sure people there aren't really pleased with a guaranteed negative return, but that's the options they're given right now. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode there. I appreciate everybody for listening. Also, if you don't know this show is on pretty much every podcast service. So it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts. If you search the Joseph Carlson show, you'll find it. So if you want to listen that way, you can, you're welcome to as well. We probably have about 5,000 listeners per episode on the different podcast services. So there's a, a good amount of audience there as well. But You can check that out. Also, if you're interested in doing more of a daily discussion, if you want more Joseph Carlson show, I have the Discord. I'm on that pretty much every day. So you can check that out as well. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next time.